0: As little children we do a pretty poor job of judging greatness. You take the little daughter of a king or queen has no idea the importance of her father or mother. Many of us will remember the day when we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that we were the fastest kid on the planet especially getting those new shoes. Right? There was no one that could possibly outrun us. It was impossible. A friend from Kansas told me that he used to shoot baskets in his driveway of his home, and he, he knew that someday the basketball coach at the University of Kansas would drive by, see him in the driveway, and offer him a scholarship on the spot. He was sure of it. Well, we grow older, don't we? And as we get even just a little bit older, we begin to discern genuine greatness. We realize some people are really important, and our parents are not among those people. We recognize that. The child who walked the street oblivious to the skyscrapers now gazes up in awe at these grand buildings, and we don't get over it, do we? Many televised football games today will come in, and what will they show you? They'll show you the city skyline, the great skyscrapers, because skyscrapers and big cities are impressive. As are great athletes and renowned philosophers and gifted musicians and heads of states and supermodels and uber-wealthy power mongers and military generals and best-selling authors. There's great people and great things, and we come to realize this. But I think as we continue to mature, we also come to another stage where we realize that greatness is not always so obvious. And we begin to see greatness, not in these things that attract everyone's attention, but often we begin to see greatness in places where other people don't see it. We come to see that what may be judged as insignificant by many is really magnificent. And what seems so magnificent is really, in the end, very insignificant. And You know, the longer and the closer that you get to Jesus Christ and His teaching, the more you see life this way. He continues to open our eyes to what seems to be so small and is indeed great. And He steers us and guides us to see some of the things that so attract our attention. Well, in fact, they're really pretty small. In fact, I think a sizable portion of Christ's teaching seems to me is calibrated toward helping us discern true greatness And to see it in unusual places. And as we grasp this teaching, we discover that what so much of the world is impressed with, God is not. And much of what is dismissed pleases the heart of the Lord. This brings us to Mark chapter 12. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles as you have them with you. Mark chapter 12. The setting here is the Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, or is the Passover, and uh, Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close. The Passover will soon be celebrated in Jerusalem. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, debating with his enemies each day in the temple courts. And as on this graphic, and what's just a model, but kind of gives us a sense of the magnificent temple constructed by Herod the Great and its dominance over the city. You see on this, this graphic, the, the little bumps in the, in the background are, are homes where people lived. If you were in Jerusalem, this temple complex really stood out. It was a massive area. And on one such occasion, Jesus took a break in the court of the women. The Court of the Women was an area where men and women could come, where women were permitted to come to this place, and uh, it, was, it would keep the numbers appropriate to the various courts. The Court of the Gentiles, you see here on the graphic on the outside, around uh, the temple complex, on the, those great uh, courts that were laid out there by Herod the Great for the congregating of the worshipers that would come to these festivals. And Jesus takes a break from debate and sits down in this court of women. They said that 15,000 people could assemble in that court, so it's a sizable area. And he takes a break there, and there's much activity that's going on. He sat down near the treasury. The treasury was located somewhere in the court of the women. It consisted of 13 collection receptacles called shofaroth. The plural trumpets, because they look something like an upside-down trumpet. We're not sure exactly uh, how to depict them today, but we, we are told in descriptions that they had a, a long, narrow neck, a, a small mouth that would keep from uh, anybody from putting their greedy hands down into the box and helping themselves to the collections, but you would drop your coins through this long uh, narrow neck and it would go down into the reservoir below and collect the gifts of worshipers as they came into this area the court of the women each receptacle was labeled so that all free will gifts and these were all free will gifts there was no demand but worshipers could come in and and with free will offerings they could with the labels that were on these receptacles could give toward a specific area of need These gifts paid for the daily sacrifices made at the temple in behalf of the nation. They paid for related temple expenses, such as the wood needed to fuel the fire of all of these sacrifices. Have you ever thought of that? We we know that many sacrifices, we read of it earlier here in 1 Chronicles, many sacrifices are offered. How do they burn all those sacrifices? Well, somebody had to cut the wood and bring the wood here and assemble it and and, and that there's cost to that. And so you could drop in some coins and it would support uh, the purchase of wood or sacrifices, uh, various things, grain and oil were purchased, various related expenses to the temple. This is where Jesus is sitting. He's watching this area as people put in their gifts. And we pick up the account there in verse 41. Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. This is the setting. Now we pick up the account He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Our English translation misses some of the richness of the Greek text here. Jesus was continuing to watch how people threw coins into the treasury. I don't think he's looking at the style of how their elbow and wrist worked or something like that, but he's watching the way in which they approached it and how how they put the money into the receptacle. I think he probably observed there a, a fair amount of pride, and verses 38 and 39 might well indicate that. But he's seeing a lot of different approaches of how people come, and he's watching them and and, and observing people in this situation. Jesus was, apparently, you could prove it here, a people watcher in the midst of a crowd. The phrase offering box translates the same Greek word that's translated treasury above, and our translation translates the word differently here to give variation. But I think Probably better just to use the same word. They're dropping things into the treasury, coins into the treasury, and he notices how they are doing that. Perhaps it is a mere diversion, but with keen mind, Jesus had a lot else to think about. With keen mind, he finds this act of worship intriguing. He finds there at the end of verse 41 that many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. That's not our penny and we don't really have capacities to understand what this means in the coinage of the day but simply to say that she puts in what is literally called two thin ones. They are such, there's such little metal in these coins. They were the smallest possible coins. It was so little metal that they were called thin ones. She's putting in nothing. The wealthy and the poor could be easily identified by their dress, if not by their demeanor, as this graphic illustrates. It was not too difficult to pick out the woman there, that uh, she is poor and impoverished. This was a snapshot taken by the Apostle Peter on his iPhone. I just want you to know. But, you know. And I, I I think they got the box wrong, too, from all the descriptions that I've seen. we have I don't believe there's ever been one uncovered, but I, I don't know that that box is right, but it kind of gives the idea, the long, narrow neck. And Jesus is watching. It's quite clear to see here who's wealthy, who's poor, and to identify this woman by her dress, perhaps even to some degree by her demeanor, who she is and her lot in life. Jesus watches then as she drops the coins into the narrow mouth and down the long neck of one of these trumpets. And he recognizes as he sees her that this hurts. This isn't an easy gift. It hurts. To release these coins is difficult, but she does so in worshipful dependence upon the Lord. And he sees a beautiful act here. There's no other explanation really for what she has done but dependence upon God. Her gift will make utterly no difference to the support of the temple, will it? She deposits two lepta, these two thin ones, these two simple coins of almost no value. And yet her act of worship moves Jesus deeply. Jesus, let's understand here, is tired. He's been doing the most difficult kind of teaching. The kind of teaching you do publicly, surrounded by enemies who want to catch you in your words so they can kill you. That's tough teaching. And you look at the preceding context and all of the debate that's going on there. This was a tough day. And he's taking a break from that heavy teaching responsibility with so much weighing upon it, and the cross casts its long shadow across everything at this point in his life. He knows that he is soon to die. It amazes me that with all that is going on in his life, he sits down and watches people. And he sees this act of faith on the part of this impoverished woman, and he's impressed. He's so impressed that he calls his disciples to come around him. He wants to teach them something, having seen this. So many rich put in their large sums. Verse 42, this poor widow comes and puts in two small coins. And, verse 43, he then called his disciples to him. And he begins to teach them. Now, on occasion, in our family travels, I will gather my family around to make a historical point. I seldom get what anybody would classify as enthusiastic response. (laughs) Dad's got another history lesson to teach us. You know how that is. You've been in that spot. Somebody says, come here, I want to show you something. I want to teach you something. There's sort of a a discomfort to that. It's kind of an intrusion. I, I, I think we can be annoyed by it fairly easily. They're all perhaps resting or at various places, and he assembles everybody together, gets in there. I don't think they probably were annoyed. But he's essentially saying, stop what you're doing, gather around, I want to say something. And while we would assume the willingness of the students, the disciples that gather around him here, they undoubtedly expect to hear some tantalizing word against their opponents. I mean, that's what has been going on. Again, as you look at the preceding context here, this has been a rough day of great opposition. And undoubtedly, they're gathering around here, I would say probably willingly, want to hear what Jesus has to teach, perhaps tired, perhaps it's a little annoying to stop what they're doing or resting or whatever. But they're undoubtedly expecting some word about their opponents. That's what's been preceding here. The preceding context is one of contentious battles, one scene after another, including Jesus' rebuke of the religious establishment for their greed and for their pride. And perhaps that's now what he's going to say again as he sees these wealthy people coming and putting things into the treasury. I think it had to be somewhat shocking for them when he explained, I want to talk to you about this widow. This poor, impoverished woman that has just walked up here. There's a lesson here I want you to grasp. So while it fits contextually, because of verses 38 and 39, it still must have been somewhat surprising to them. What does he have to teach from this woman's life? He says, verse 43 Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, to the treasury. It's an amazing calculation. And we've probably gotten used to this kind of calculation from Jesus, but when you think about it, it's really an amazing statement. She's put in more than all of them. Jesus is viewing things here quite differently than our world teaches us to view them. He's looking at their gifts and at her gift, and he is comparing and drawing a conclusion. She gave more than they did. How is that? Verse 44, he explains, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Their gifts may have been substantial, but they gave out of their abundance. In other words, it means that once they had given their gifts, they had more to live on than they needed even after the gift. For her, it probably meant she didn't eat anything more that day and who knows about tomorrow. Jesus, I think here, is probably not exercising omniscience so much as He's drawing the obvious conclusion this woman in the way she puts these coins in and who she is, is giving up any further chance to eat today. She's giving her life away in devotion and faithful trust in the Lord. And in that in God's eyes she has given more than all of them combined. They out of their abundance, she out of her poverty. When she gives like this, it hurts. Her giving had a direct effect upon her. Probably the opportunity not to eat, but while her humble spirit and dependence on the Lord contrasts starkly with the pride of the rich, Jesus primarily impresses upon his disciples her gift, the sacrifice of that gift. Now this woman, she's not an idiot. She can look around and realize these two thin coins are not going to matter around here. She is worshiping God in the midst of unprecedented opulence. Herod's temple was stunning and her two thin coins are not going to keep the show going. The purpose of her giving was not because she saw some great value in the coins that she's dropping in. The purpose of her giving was worship of the Lord and dependence upon him. Her coins would never be missed if she used them to supply her own needs In fact, I would imagine that the social justice police of our day and the social justice police of a lot of churches would sit down and put into the mouth of Jesus a rebuke against the system. Jesus should denounce this corrupt system that preyed on this woman like this, that caused her to give away her food that day, her sustenance, in order to support this grand scheme of the temple. Well, Jesus does rebuke the religious establishment for their greed. He doesn't back down on that at all, but he sees something differently here. He sees that she is giving out of her poverty in utter dependence upon the Lord, and Jesus sees that as an act of worship that he chooses to commend. It hurts her, and it makes no difference to the system but she gives in devotion to the Lord, and that is to be commended. That's our master saying this. He recognized that her poverty provided an opportunity to trust God and worship Him in a way that most of us will never experience in this life. We'll never be to the place where we actually lay down our food for the day. She put in more, says Jesus. As God sees us, as God looks down upon it, He looks not on the magnificent size of the gift, but on the depth of faith that motivates that gift. There's great hope for us in this. Seeing it from this angle, Jesus determines that she gave more than everyone else combined. There was a certain recklessness, writes Barclay, to her giving. And Far from criticizing her, Jesus commends her. Now, there's recklessness that's foolish. There's ways of devotion that are just dumb and they should be condemned. But in her situation in this place, this impresses Jesus. As we learn to rethink material wealth, and as we learn to think of material wealth according to Jesus' teaching, I think we should recognize that in the present campaign we're involved in, Ministry Advance 2016, as we, we lay down our gifts, that it's very conceivable that there's a child in our church that will give more than all of us combined. It won't make any difference the denomination of the gift but of the hard attitude and i'm reminded of the last time that we went through this process and a mother coming up to me and saying my young daughter has determined to give all of her savings to the church building i don't know if she did i never found out i never asked that there's a spirit of a child there that doesn't recognize all that I've saved and how absolutely important it is, but recognizes a call to trust and to respond. And I would imagine that if that gift was given given and all the savings were, were brought and put into the offering plate for this building, that you couldn't even probably identify a square inch of it that it paid for. I don't know. But Jesus does teach us that God thinks differently. And it may be that a child gives more than all of us combined. Because it's not about the amount. It's about the heart orientation. That's what impresses Christ here. And as with our last campaign, more than one person has told me of their disappointment that they cannot contribute to this particular project i say first be at peace be at peace this isn't about getting a certain dollar number necessarily it's about our walk with the lord if you cannot give more thank him seek his face to enable you to do so in the future and be at peace but for those who are discouraged that they cannot give anything like they would like to would like cannot give anything that would make a difference. I think we take to heart this widow's gift. It's not about the dollar amount. It's about the heart orientation. In the big scheme of things, our giving is not about the amount. It's about the opportunity to give away what we have in a way that requires utter dependence upon the Lord. And That's a good place to be. This was one insignificant woman but we learned from Jesus that in God's eyes she was truly great and great is her reward in heaven one commentator noticed that Jesus did not even talk to her he didn't need to she she had life pretty well figured out and one put it beautifully It was a tryst for heaven. Someday, if not already, they've talked. Now the next two verses as we move into the next chapter have more to do with what follows in Mark than they do with the account of the widow and her gift. What Jesus says in 13, 1 and 2 is directly related to his teaching on end times which follow in Mark 13. You heard me say that, right? I know that, I recognize that. That's the important lean of verses 1 and 2. But I think it's also interesting that the account of this woman occurs in two places in the Gospels, and in both places this exact same conversation follows. Now, not wanting to make too much of it, I don't think it is making too much of it to see her gift to the temple, followed by Jesus' assessment of that physical temple. And so to draw the light connection there, I think we have here what some would call a Janus, that is, it's, it's looking, it goes to Greek mythology, don't worry about it, but it's, it's basically a God with two faces. And the faces move forward and backward. So these verses, verses 1 and 2, kind of hang in there looking backward to this woman's gift as Jesus talks about the temple and also looking forward to what is to come. And that is his teaching about the destruction of that temple. So let's pick that up. And just briefly in these first two verses of 13, he came out of the temple. And as he did, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, on this graphic, this is just a model. You wonder sometimes if you've noticed some of the models differ. We don't know exactly, but we're pretty close, I think. This is a magnificent building. It just isn't anything like this anywhere around that any of the people that are coming here probably have ever seen in any shape or form. It was a magnificent building. And as again, you can see, it dominated the city at that time. This being a model of what it would have looked like at the time of Christ. Herod the Great began his construction of the temple by building up, as you see here, this massive platform. 400 by 500 yards. Those who have any concept of a football field, that's 100 yards. 400 by 500 yards. This is a massive complex that would hold a lot of people on these courts. And it was built to accommodate the massive crowds that would choke Jerusalem during festival times. The sheer size and enormity of this is beyond comprehension, particularly for people in that day. And the sheer size of the stones used in this endeavor to say nothing of the beauty of the buildings was mind-boggling. It's difficult for us to imagine the impression this construction project would have made on ancient people before the technologies of our times you've seen this before some of you but here's an existing stone that one stone uh, Beth's left on on the right of her for us it's just one stone carved out and set in place that hasn't moved for 2,000 years there are uh, evidences of stones that were about two times the length of this, and some have reported even larger in length. These are massive, massive chunks of stone cut out from the side of mountains and brought to this place and built one on top of the others. We go back to this graphic, I mean, think of the rows of these massive stones. And so, so grand was this construction project that today a portion of that wall, and it would have been a support wall, not an actual wall of the temple, but a support wall, the western wall is still there today. Stacking these stones, one on top of another, the size that they were, has lasted these 2,000 years. You can see stones on top there that were piled on later after they were toppled over, but you see the mass of stones that are there in place with the bodies, the, the people standing down below, giving just at least a little sense of the tremendous size and weight of these stones. Herod the Great was a master engineer and the recipient of unprecedented sums of tax revenues, and he put his embarrassment of riches to use in construction projects throughout the land. By anyone's estimation, the temple was a magnificent work dominating the city. The ancient historian Josephus, considering the length of writings that day, this is impressive, used in today's terms nearly 200 pages just to describe the temple to his Roman readers. And we know the disciples to be pretty normal guys, right? I mean, they were There was that night, you remember, where they found themselves in a small watercraft in the middle of a huge lake on a black night with a violent storm swamping their boat. And guess what? They got scared. Imagine that. And when they saw Herod's temple, when they saw the buildings and the massive stones his workers cut out of the side of mountains and somehow stacked on top of one another, they were impressed. They were normal people. We're impressed today. People travel from all over the world to see this stack of stones. It was magnificent. Jesus, what do you do when you see something great? You praise it. Jesus, look at these stones. Isn't this impressive? Here's what our master says, verse 2. And Jesus said to him, this disciple, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Do you see these great buildings? There he's talking particularly about the buildings, the structures that are there. They will be plowed. Not one stone will stand upon another. He's prophesying the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem and later destruction in which the Temple Mount was cleared. Every stone was overturned and pushed down into the valleys surrounding the Temple. The Romans got so sick and tired of the Israelites that they decided... We're going to so destroy this place that no one will ever know it was here. Now, they fell a little short of that, and the Western Wall attests to that today. But to this day, that's the reason we're not sure where the buildings exactly stood. They did such a thorough job of making sure not one stone stood on another, and every one of them was down in the valley somewhere. And you can see piles of the stones today that have been unearthed. Time filled it up with dirt, but they've unearthed it and you can see the rubble where it lays as they overturn this and Jesus' prophecy becomes true. And I think as they're looking at that place, they're going, really? But he knew it was coming. Jesus, however, back to the point here, not just that we would think about the building, but Jesus was not impressed with the splendor of Herod's temple. And that is impressive. He certainly appreciated it as an engineering feat. He certainly appreciated the labor that went into it. It provided an ideal teaching venue, and he was pleased to use it that way. In fact, he saw it not ultimately as Herod's temple, but as God's house, right? It was the location that was of ultimate importance, not the form of the temple. Nonetheless, as magnificent as the stones in the buildings were, he knew them to be temporal. And ultimately then insignificant to the saving plan of God. Herod's great stones and construction project constituted magnificent insignificance in Jesus' mind. It's magnificent in everybody's eyes, but ultimately in God's, this is Insignificant. And he saw, on the other hand, insignificant magnificence. Everybody's eyes, she doesn't matter. But this, this act is truly great. Two thin coins overweigh all of Herod's building project in Jesus' estimation. In the liberality of her gift, in her faith, in the risk-taking devotion of her giving heart, Jesus sees true greatness. And He gathers His disciples together to stress that her greatness overshadowed that of the rich and famous and even this temple itself. He teaches His followers to look at life differently. He teaches us to be impressed with the faithfulness of a destitute woman, not with the splendor of a temporal building. The temple would soon be destroyed along with the widow's coins, but her gift was a heart issue that endeared her to the Lord and had eternal implications. There's no other reason for him to say what he's saying but that there are eternal implications. The temple's gone, her coins are gone, but her testimony stands. We find here, I think, a beautiful account of a vital principle that runs throughout the Scriptures. This is just one evidence of it, but we find it throughout. God rejoices to use small things. He just does, doesn't He? He rejoices to use insignificant people as He works out His salvation purposes in this waking world. The Apostle Paul put it this way memorably. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's us. But, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Over and again, the prophet said, That's power. I've got nothing to show right now, but that will be brought down. The things that are not, bringing down the things that are. Herod boasted. His own glories in the presence of God and He in hell today and His temple gone. has nothing to show. We can still go back and see some of what He accomplished. But where is He? And where did it place Him with God? The widow boasted in God and her faith is celebrated worldwide and will be for eternity. They're celebrating it today because they can make money on it. There's people running around all over with the widow's mite. I know there's so many mites in that city being sold today. It could fund the temple, you would think. But they haven't forgot about her. What our world sees as insignificant, God sees as magnificent. He rejoices to crush Satan's head with an infant boy whose lineage runs through Sarah, a barren woman past childbearing. He chooses Israel, and He says pointedly, not because you're great, but because you're not great. You're the least among the nations. I choose you to work My saving purposes through you. He chooses to save Israel as a nation and bridges the way to the Davidic monarchy through, again, a barren woman, Hannah, who bears Samuel. God chooses a poor peasant woman then ultimately to bear Messiah, who himself works as a common laborer and travels about Israel dependent on the care of others, leaving behind no great buildings, no great books that he himself wrote, no great name as far as the Romans looked at him. And God chooses to defeat death. Not through the onslaught of an innumerable host of angelic warriors, but through a son who dies as a lowly criminal, the most ignoble, torturous death imaginable. That's how he defeats death. And empowered by that sacrifice, in light of the eternal joy Jesus purchased for us, we will continue to evaluate greatness differently than those who serve man's kingdom. We serve a crucified Savior. We serve a God of small people. That works His power and His greatness through the week. Oh, there are so many applications in our lives. And I encourage those gathering today, this afternoon, for, uh, various, in various home groups, work out these implications. It applies to various areas of our life, but let me bring it to a point here with our particular focus today and in these years ahead in our ministry advance 2016 do we recognize eden baptist church is very very insignificant in this world's eyes nobody cares what's going on here in this broad world our giving project indeed itself is small small stuff listen i have a neighbor who lives in a house that costs more than what we owe on this building. Now, she doesn't live next to me anymore, I'll tell you that. <laughs> she moved to the big house. But there are people living around us in this city. Their homes, their move west aways, their yachts cost more than what we owe on this building. This is small stuff as the world looks at it. We're an insignificant people. This is a project that does not even turn any heads as far as the world is concerned. But Compared to the rest of the world, we are, let's say and admit, fabulously wealthy. We are indeed, in that wealth, poised by the grace of God after our gifts next Lord's Day, to specifically help the persecuted church in India. We know we have brothers and sisters that do not share what we have and we recognize in comparison with them we are called to help and to aid. But compared to our culture, this church is small stuff. We thank God for this building. The last building that we had turned a lot of people off and we thank God for it. Not because it turned them off, but we're just glad to have a place. It was easy to see that was small stuff. This building, comparatively speaking, is not big in our culture. We're small stuff, but in light of this text, that's an exciting thing. Because our God has always rejoiced to see small faithfulness as greatness. When Jesus saw the heart of that widow in action, what man saw as insignificant, he saw as great. And we must learn also than ourselves to so evaluate our world and to so learn to order our lives and our priorities. Jesus is teaching us not to be impressed with the power brokers and the famous people and the technologies of our day. He's encouraging us not to be discouraged with our smallness. He's encouraging us to faithfulness, to walk in dependent trust upon Him. He teaches us to be impressed with the despised Son of Nazareth who defeated death by dying and who taught us to see faithful devotion to God as true greatness. Is He getting through? Are we heeding the lesson? Are we rightly discerning our world? And what does he see when he sees you? Thankfully, it's not about the size of your bank account, your holdings, your house, your importance. It's about faithfulness. Faithfulness in the eyes of Christ is greatness. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I I acknowledge before you that we've got work to do as a church. We live in a world that doesn't think like this at all. It's pressing us, pressing us to show our greatness by what we own, to show our greatness by how many people we control, by how much we make. Help us to think clearly. There's nothing in this that encourages us to think small. Not to pursue wealth. Not to do the best that we can with the resources that we have to improve and to grow and all of that. We we know that's not what you're saying. But Lord, how often we feel small because we're giving in to the thinking of our world. And as we look at the smallness of our particular project here, we recognize, Lord, how how little we are. But I pray that you would carry this task forward. The establishment of this building as a base of operation and the continuing ministry that flows from it, I ask that you would base this on the work of little people being faithful. I pray that you will take us where you want us to go. We don't ask for greatness. We don't want greatness. We want faithfulness. And I pray that we would identify not with those who gawk at Herod's walls and at the magnificent buildings overlaid with gold and cut out of stone and marble, But I pray that we'd identify with those who do faithful things. And I pray today as we gather in home groups that we'll talk through what some of those faithful things are that our world dismisses, but I pray would be increasingly priority in our church. That we would learn to rightly evaluate greatness. God, there may be some here among us who see themselves as great, And even though they might not understand it, are resting in their own righteousness, their own goodness, and they're saying to you that they don't need you. I pray that you'll teach them the dependence of this widow. Perhaps not so much in the financial realm, but in the realm of salvation. That they would throw themselves in dependence upon you and your saving grace. Bring them to that place. Help them to see that salvation is a free gift for those who trust in Christ crucified and risen. I pray that you'll move to this end in our congregation today. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen.
1: What would you do if you could eliminate uh, all all your personal death?
0: (laughs) We've uh, we've gone through this a few times today, haven't we? We just have a... Uh, thing to show you i'll just, i'll admit up front ideally this was intended for another setting but i think is appropriate And just a few moments we're we're going to collect our commitment cards as we bring uh, this next three-year project to a close us on the front side of it and uh, we'll just take a few moments here and collect those cards if you don't know what we're talking about just bear with us for a little bit but um, those that have, are making a, a commitment that way to help us strategize, we'll collect those in just a, a, a minute. We intended to have this uh, video at our uh, Fellowship Sunday. It just was not, we're not able to do that for a number of reasons. But uh, we'll show that here and then we'll, uh, we'll collect uh, our cards and our gifts and offerings today just with our regular giving as well. We'll do that here at the end. So give just a few minutes and uh, to think through Uh, Where we're at and where we're pressing here in the days ahead. Thank you. Go ahead
1: What would you do if you could eliminate all your personal debt? Your mortgage your car payment any student loans or credit card debt that you may have What would you do if every month you had an extra two hundred dollars? five hundred dollars thousand dollars $2,000, what would you do? Maybe you'd plan a great vacation to some exotic, far-off location, a second honeymoon of sorts. Maybe you'd go on a cruise and tour some tropical location. Perhaps you'd buy yourself a brand-new wardrobe. Go on that hunting trip you've always wanted to take. Buy a reliable car. Or maybe you just save all that money for a rainy day. Or a day when all you have is days. Maybe you'd even buy tickets to watch the Minnesota Vikings play. On second thought, nah. Here at Eden Baptist Church, we have to ask ourselves the same question. What would we as a church family do if we were able to eliminate our debt? What would we add to our church? A new playground for the kids? A basketball court? A full size gymnasium? A new church van for those long trips? A beautiful campground. Or perhaps just a better cup of coffee on Sunday mornings.
2: A more important question we need to ask What ministries could we add? enhance or develop at Eden Baptist. An inner city church plant, sharing the gospel with those less fortunate than ourselves. Another elder, enhancing the shepherding and teaching ministries at Eden Baptist. Full support of the folks, helping them to more efficiently spread the gospel in the country of Spain. enhance other current ministries, the ministries of our deacons around the church, to our widows and orphans, and increasing the women's ministries and their opportunities to share the gospel with other women and encourage each other.
0: Eden Baptist Church initiated Ministry Advance 2016 in order to grasp an opportunity for increased ministry in the future. What kind of opportunities? Our Lord defined the ministry of the church for us. In the book of Mark, he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. In Matthew, Jesus adds that we are to teach those who respond to the gospel in saving faith, teach them to observe all that he had commanded the apostles. So Ministry Advance 2016 is not ultimately about paying down a mortgage it is not ultimately about strengthening our financial position ultimately in the long-range look it is about ministry the goal of eden baptist church is and must be in all things to spread the gospel of jesus crucified buried risen reigning and coming again our goal must be to teach the whole counsel of god please join me as we stand shoulder to shoulder as fellow members of Eden Baptist Church and commit to advancing the ministry that Jesus gave us, the advance of His church. Thank you for those who uh, addressed us in that way. and uh, The ideas expressed here are not particular plans, it's just causing us to think and to Imagine where the Lord might take us in the days ahead. We'll ask the ushers to come forward at this time. We'll dedicate our our gifts uh, to the Lord after they are collected. The choir is going to come and uh, sing for us as we receive these gifts. So this is our regular offering for today, as well as if you have cards that you have uh, in which you're submitting a commitment to this uh, project, you can please put those in the. Uh, plates or hand them to the ushers i'm not sure what if they'll all fit in there so just uh, hand them uh, to the ushers and we'll collect those at this time and then we'll have a prayer of dedication over our uh, commitments here as, as the choir ends its ministry to us Stand together and seek the Lord in prayer as we finish out our time here. Those who visit with us, we